Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Pre-Health Pod. My name is Lexi. And unfortunately, Sarah isn't here today because her life has been turned upside down because she just got into PA school. So she wasn't able to make it. But it's just me today. We have our very special guest, Dr. Jennifer Weiss, with us today. As you know, we're a podcast brought to you by students for students who've been through undergrad, are going through application processes currently, and are here to meet you wherever you are, whether you're an undergrad currently in your gap year, non-trad, we're here to help you. But yeah, I'd love to read the bio for Dr. Weiss. She is an orthopedic surgeon specializing in pediatric orthopedic surgery and sports medicine. Growing up as the daughter of an orthopedic surgeon, Jennifer saw firsthand how male-dominated the world of medicine is. Throughout medical school, she encountered few female students and fewer women that were aspiring to become orthopedic surgeons. From the start, it has always been her goal to help aspiring women to become successful surgeons and to inspire women to enter the field of surgery and not be intimidated by this largely male profession. Dr. Weiss actively writes and speaks on the topic of women in medicine. She has served on the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons Board of Directors and is currently the Communications Cabinet Chair. She teaches communication skills to physicians, surgeons, and other healthcare clinicians, both within her large integrated healthcare system in Southern California and within the Orthopedic Surgery Societies. Her research is widely published, and she's an active leader and speaker within the medical community nationally and internationally. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Weiss. We're excited to have you. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. I know um, we first met because I reached out to you back in 2020, my first national pre-health conference. That was, I guess, about three years ago, and you just gave an amazing talk on your life in medicine and what you wish you knew and I think I mentioned this to you earlier, but it was that presentation that like sparked my interest and eventually solidified in my mind that I wanted to pursue a career myself in surgery. When you were talking about your experience and how much you love your profession, I was like, oh, I would love to have that same experience myself. Um, And I shadowed a few orthopedic surgeons recently, and I just loved the surgeries. It was really, really cool. So I just wanted to say thank you again for sharing that presentation with us at MPHC. That is, makes me so happy. I think that as we get into our careers as physicians and surgeons, sometimes we can lose track of why we did this in the first place. And to me, the best way to reconnect with that is connecting with people in your shoes and with your enthusiasm and just the pool of people who is going into medicine today, you all just blow me away. So it's really fun to come back to my roots and remember why I did this all those years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And we should definitely get you at one of our future conferences. Again, we'd love to. Have I would you love that. Again. Our next one, I think, or I know it's March 21st to the 22nd in 2023. So maybe I'll reach out to you after this and see if we can get you on. Or is our, or is our first potentially confirmed speaker? I haven't really worked on that event yet, but Yeah, I'd love to start off with my first question, just to open up the conversation a bit. Can you share a memorable story you have from your work in pediatric orthopedics that left a lasting impression on you? Yes, so many. When I was an orthopedic resident in Houston at Baylor, I wasn't sure what subspecialty was for me. I very much was interested in sports. And to be clear, my subspecialty today is pediatric sports. So I did end up practicing sports. But the thing that really drew me to kids 
was the Shriners Hospital in Houston, Texas. And I had this mentor who is, I'm still dear friends with him. He's a very old school, demanding, tough love kind of a surgeon. His name is Dick Haynes. And when I was a resident, I was having kind of a struggle year. And I was really coming to terms with what it meant to be a woman in a field so dominated by men and also in a program where at that time, I was feeling that the world of pediatrics actually seemed to be a place that I could function in my own skin a little bit better. And, and Dick Haynes was one of the people that could, that taught me that in answer to your question, I was with him in clinic one day and I walked into a patient room as a resident. And for those of you who are starting on your medical journey, when you're in medical school or as a resident, often the way the teaching goes is you go into the room first, you learn about the patient, you connect with them, you find out why they're there, you gather the information and then go present to your attending physician or resident or whoever's teaching you that day. So on my path to do that on this particular day, I walked into a room and there was a little boy who was the cutest and he must have been four or five and he had a deformity in which his hand was coming right out of his shoulder socket. So he didn't really have an arm. But what was incredible to me is that's not why he was there that day. That was not what we call his chief complaint. He was there because his knee was hurting and because he was trying to be active. And it was just this moment of like, I quickly followed like, no, no, we're not talking about the hand coming out of the shoulder right now. That's just him. We're going to talk about his knee. And he was such a absolute pleasure of a little soul. And all he wanted to do was make sure and his mom just wanted to make sure you know, he was too young to care why he was there. But his mom just wanted to make sure he was okay to play. And that left such a lasting impression on me of these little people who they just want to live in the world and being a pediatric orthopedist, I get to help them do that. Yeah, kids are awesome. They're like, so relentless. And they don't really know the real world or the real truth. They just they just want to play. They just want to have a good time. <laughs> I was a nanny for the past year and it is truly amazing working with kids because they just see the world in a whole different light. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course, you know what I mean. <laughs> You're in pediatrics. I do. Um, and there's also the whole piece in medicine today of sort of secondary gains from all sorts of people. And I'm not even necessarily talking about patients, from clinicians, from physicians, from everybody on the team. There's all this kind of crunchy, tough stuff going on. And when you take care of a kid, it's really easy to come together and put all of that stuff aside and be really centered on this, you know, as I said, this little soul. So yeah, it's cool. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story. Amazing. Yeah, I'd love to navigate a little bit more into potentially your experience with the medical school application process, whether your story specifically or maybe guiding pre-med students you knew or um, if you saw any applications in these last few years. So what guidance or tips can you share for pre-meds as they navigate the challenging path toward medical school? Yeah, so first of all, I am so blown away by this pool of 
people, my generation looks at your applications and says, we could have never, we could have never competed against this pool. You're amazing. My experience currently is with Kaiser Permanente School of Medicine, and I'm an adjunct kind of faculty, and I get involved giving some talks and mentoring some students. I'm not on their admissions committee at all. But what I am noticing is that this School of Medicine has this really amazing mission to foster the generation of change makers, because medicine is in such a place of challenge and quite honestly, some disarray, because the world is trying to figure out what do we do with this kind of consumeristic medical place that's not really where anyone wants it to be. The doctors don't want it to be like that. The patients don't want it to be like that. The physician assistants don't want it to be like that. And so how do we navigate away from that? And so I think that the schools are really focusing not just on grades, which is of course important, and not just on standardized tests, which are important, but also what else are people doing in the world to activate and notice and motivate change so that we can somehow step away from this quagmire that we've gotten ourselves into. I really strongly admire that mission. And I wrote about this actually a lot of my applications. It's something I'm very passionate about. I'm very interested in health policy because physicians are the leaders of this country. They are extremely knowledgeable and people trust us. And I actually went went to this recent uh, conference by AMSA, not I was going to say AMWAS, AMSA, the American Medical Student Association. It was here in Phoenix, the Physicians for Change conference. Their whole theme was centered around advocacy. And I had never really realized it until they were talking about it at this conference. They were like, medical students and attendings and residents, even pre-medical students, you all have a voice people can respect you because you have gone through this challenging path. You've worked hard to get here and you know a lot about the healthcare system and also your communities. And so if there is something or a cause that you want to talk about, don't be afraid to step up because people will listen to you. And that really impacted me and inspired me to go into health policy. I recently also had experienced, um, I went to an advocacy event at the Arizona State Capitol and I shadowed a physician who was an elected representative. And I had no idea. I was like, oh, you can go into policy like with a career in medicine. And he was like, I think it is so having that background in medicine makes me a better politician because I can influence my peers who don't know anything about the healthcare system to help them make good bills that turn into good laws in our state. I think that's really awesome what Kaiser Permanente is doing to create these change makers and medical students. I love that you're noticing what advocacy is at such an early stage. I think that there's many ways that physicians advocate politically and our orthopedic academy has a very strong advocacy arm that is very patient centric. And we actually have a day every year where we come together, sort of the leadership of the Orthopedic Surgery Academy, we come together in Washington, D.C., and we go lobby. And we choose what bills we are promoting, again, very patient-centric. 
and nobody better to advocate for our public and sick people and people in need than their doctors. And I think that in today's day and age, if I had to choose one advocacy point to promote, especially to the next generation, it's that relationship between physicians and clinicians and our patients. Because I think that that's what's with, at risk with this consumeristic sort of metrics-driven yeah, yeah. healthcare environment that we're all sort of swimming upstream in. Just a f- few weeks ago at this dermatology clinic I work in, I'm their scribe. I had something really heartbreaking happen with one of my patients. She came in, she had a scar from a recent surgery she had, and it was very painful. It was keeping her up at night and we had decided it was medically necessary for her to receive um, what's called intralesional catalog injections or steroids to help relieve her pain. And I went to go talk to the front desk and see if like her insurance would approve this. And her insurance said, no, it would not approve it. And we'd be like, well, she's having pain. It's affecting her quality of life or quality of sleep. Like it's medically necessary. And they'd be like, nope, we can't cover it. There's nothing we can do. And she had to pay out of pocket and it's like hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And this poor lady was heartbroken. She was like, but it's causing me pain. There's nothing you can do. And that's just one of the few examples I've seen. I'm not even in medical school yet. And I'm already feeling beat down a bit by the healthcare system. I'm not even the physician, but I as the scribe who's trying to help this patient get insurance approval. I like couldn't do anything. And I really felt for her. And so as us as physicians, we are leaders and we can bridge that gap in communication between us and our patients. And I think that's great that you're doing advocacy days. How often do you do them? Did you say once a year? We do them annually for the um, AAOS. But I want to get back to what you were just talking about, because that experience that you just mentioned of standing in front of a patient who has or had a need and Mm -hmm. having this barrier to be able to provide what your patient needs, who's right in front of you, that is the hugest driver of burnout. And in the medical field, it is the moral injury creator. And to be able to recognize that again, at such an early stage in your career is really important because so many of us didn't recognize that that's what's been wounding us for so long. It just adds an unnecessary amount of stress and it strains our system too, because this patient now has to go make several phone calls, see if she could also switch insurance carriers, and then she'd have to return to the office um, and see if it gets covered. And, you know, it just adds more and more work, not just for us, but for the patient. And not just like, it adds more emotional pain to her experience. It, it does. And depending on the sophistication, the conversation is between the physician and the physician's office and the patient that can often get misconstrued as the physician requiring something as opposed to the insurance company. And so I think that depending on the level of understanding that our patients have, that contributes to a sort of clinician-physician hatred and shaming that is sometimes popping up. I hope that in these scenarios as they come up, that people are stopping to explain to their patients, this is what the barrier is. It's not me. It's not that I don't want to do it. And I think that the finances, unfortunately, are that physicians used to be able to provide things pro bono. 
And because the costs are just so narrow and the ability to keep a practice going is so difficult, as well as sometimes when people do things pro bono, sometimes they're not covered by their malpractice in the same way. So there's a whole lot of barriers. And yeah, thanks for recognizing that so early on. Yeah, I'm guessing it'll be the first of many, unfortunately. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that advice. And we actually just had an episode with an MDJD student last week, and we were talking all about how to get involved in policy. So if you're listening to this and want to learn more about how you can get involved in policy and potentially pursue a career path like this, or even if you don't want to have a JD on top of your MD, you can still pursue policy. And we talked about a little bit. Um, that was with Victor at Abafe. But yeah, I wanted to ask my next question, which centers around our theme for this episode. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your experience um, in the male-dominated field of surgery. I know you touched on it a bit earlier on, but what are some of the gender-related challenges or disparities that you have faced, and how have you navigated these issues? It's definitely the variance of aggression down to that that word microaggression and everything in between. I would say that the first bubble bursting moment that I experienced within orthopedics was back when I was training, internship was a general surgery internship. And when we matched into orthopedics, it all happened at once. We would do a general surgery internship at whatever program we were in and then go straight into orthopedics. So in my internship in orthopedics, I only did two months of orthopedics. So very, very little, and I couldn't wait to get into it. So I was on a rotation that was not an orthopedic rotation. And this was also pre 80 hour work week. So these were the days where I'd walk up hill to school both ways through the snow, right? I, <laughs> the hours were long. And for some reason, I had a day where I was done with my general surgery duties by like five. And it was amazing. And I had a friend who was a nurse, a circulating nurse in the operating room. And she and I had been talking about what it was going to be like when I got into orthopedics and I couldn't wait. She was on a break and I passed her in the hall and I said, is the scoliosis surgery still happening in in room three? And she was like, oh yeah, come on in. I'll introduce you to Dr. So-and-so. Come watch. You know, I was like, absolutely. So bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, even though I was exhausted, I go on in she says, and she's this elegant, graceful, Southern experienced nurse, right? And she's so comfortable in her skin and she brings me in and I'm all shy and I don't know what's happening. And she says, Dr. X, this is Dr. Weiss and she's going to be doing orthopedics next year. And and can she watch the scoliosis case? And Mm -hmm. Dr. X, who was very senior in his career at that point, looks up over his glasses at me looks at her and says, I guess so, but I didn't know girls could do this and goes right back to operating. Wow. And I was silent. I was silent. I could not find my voice. I could not find my sadness, my anger. All I could feel was my fatigue Mm -hmm. at that point. And I don't think I had ever felt so tired. And just five minutes before I had been so happy. And I think that that reaction to that statement is coming out of me now in we have founded an organization called speak up ortho. And this organization is built around supporting a better culture, not just for women, but for everybody in orthopedic surgery. I think that the second most disturbing slash 
sad story is one that plays out over and over and over. And that is that as a woman in surgery, it is very common that we will meet a patient, describe the surgery that we are offering or recommending, talk about the risks, talk about the benefits, talk about the intricacies of how we're going to do the surgery only to meet with the next question is, and who's going to do the surgery? Yeah. It's not an aggression from patients. It's an honest, implicit bias. I'm, I'm not young anymore. I've got, you can see you, the podcast listeners can't see them, but I've got gray hairs that I'm showing off here. I'm 52 yeah, years old <laughs> and I'm still in that mode of of needing to prove every day that I can be an orthopedic surgeon. It's mm-hmm. exhausting. I'm so sorry to hear that. And is it getting better? <laughs> For me personally, yeah. I feel a hundred percent that it's getting better. And I wouldn't still be doing this if it didn't. Right, yeah. However, what drove us with Speak Up Ortho, quite frankly, mm-hmm. was that the comments that we were receiving when we started to solicit yeah. um, information about people's experience, those of us in my generation, women in my generation, we looked at each other and we said, why are we still hearing the same stuff from the women who are residents now. You know, there's this famous theory that there's a tipping point at about one third or 33% that brings any collection of people or professionals or boardrooms to a place of inclusivity. And 6% is still really far away from that. We're creeping up a little bit but I'm not a Debbie Downer. Like I am love orthopedics. I love being an orthopedic surgeon who's a woman. I'm going to be in two years president of our women's orthopedic society called Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society. Like I love all this. I'm happy about it. However, I am flabbergasted that I can't tell you, of course, it's getting better. There's a lot of work still to be done. Well, it sounds like we definitely need more women in surgery for this number to go up or go down. (laughs) to decrease the disparity. Yeah. Oh, wow. I remember when I worked in the ER, just a similar experience happening to the female ER physicians, you know, you walk in a room and they start talking, like asking them multiple questions, explaining to them um, the treatment plan and the consults that are going to happen, any medication that they might receive in this time in the ER. And at the end of it, it just always be the same thing. It'd be like, great. Well, when's the doctor coming in? <laughs> and then it'd be like, she'd be like, she'd hold up her badge. This would be the same position. There's one position. This would happen to constantly every time I worked with her. She'd show up her badge and be like, me, I'm the doctor. And she'd write in like in huge letters on her badge, doctor. And she'd just gone out of residency. And so after a few months of this happening, every time she'd walk in the room, she'd like, I am doctor so-and-so. Just to and I think what's going on. Oh. I think that language is super important. And yeah. in this era of people trying to lump physicians using with other clinicians using the word provider, it's really dangerous, especially for women and especially for people of color and underrepresented minorities, because this implicit bias is severe and it's dangerous. For the patients, because they don't know who is who on their team. And if they don't know that you're the surgeon and the person standing next to you is the physician 
assistant and that other person over there is the physical therapist. They need to know who to direct their questions to. And so when I started my career, I didn't go by Dr. Weiss. I didn't walk into the room and say, I'm Dr. Weiss. And now I do. I split the difference because I take care of kids. I introduce myself to the child as Dr. Weiss. And then I look at the parent and say, hi, I'm Jennifer Weiss. But I think it's really important that we hold on to those terms. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. And that was something I got quite confused and until they introduced badges that labeled them as PA or MP or P, our physician in our ER that I worked in because people would get confused because we had all three types of career paths that worked in our ER and no one really knew who was who and they would often call the PA's doctor. <laughs> and the PAs usually just wouldn't clarify unless it was absolutely necessary. But yeah, pretty interesting. So yeah, I'd love to hear more about your experience with your organization. So you got it. When did you start that? Speak Up Ortho, we're about a year and a half old. Oh, wow. That's awesome. We're young. Do you guys host any events or conferences? So yes, Speak Up Ortho, we're on Twitter, I guess. We're on X now. We're on Instagram. We're on threads. And we have a website that is Speak Up. Or I will send you the link to yeah, add yeah. to for everybody. Captions. And our mission is really to pave a smoother path yeah. for those that are coming behind us, specifically in orthopedic surgery. But we have a lot of people reaching out to us from other fields trying to emulate our work and starting to emulate our work. And our deliverables are providing resources for people who experience bad culture, bad behavior. We are working with societies to work on vetting of leaders, to work on what to do in the case of when harassment and bullying gets reported. We're really getting into the work of not just getting out there that this is a problem and that it's still happening, but solutions-based and having some positivity and places to move. So our website's full of a bunch of resources and we do many speaking events and some of those end up on our website as well. Oh my gosh, that's great to hear. And I had never really experienced anything of like a gender disparity between myself as a woman and a man until actually recently I had a job recently over the last several months and as I was going into this job right before I started um, one of the other female one of my co-workers had asked me out to dinner she was telling me she was warning me about my boss he apparently was you know narcissistic tended to micromanage and have these experiences and I called my mom after and I asked her, I was like, should I accept this job? <laughs> I was like, this sounds like a, a scary experience. And I didn't really get this impression. I did tell it was, a, it was a weird interview. It was very on the fly, but I haven't really experienced this yet, this yet. And she told me, you know, you should do this so that you are prepared for your future career. <laughs> I was like, what? And then she was like, but you'll never escape it especially in the corporate world, especially in the field of medicine, you will experience people like this and men like this. When she told me that, I just got kind of really sad. And I started the job, me and my coworker, I started to realize, you know, I had these experiences, like the micromanaging and the yelling. And it was just me and my coworker as a woman. And I talked to the 
our male coworker, there's three of us in the team. And he was like, I wasn't really experiencing this at all. And I was like, oh, and then all of us went to HR about it. HR wrote a huge letter to the head of the company. And they basically told us that they would never do anything about it. He would always be our manager and you should just quit. And so I did. And after that experience, I just, I kind of felt like it was my fault. Like, why did I take the job? Why did I not do these warning signs? And then of course, you know, it's, it's not my fault that this happened to me and that it derailed my life for a little bit. And I had to find a job, which took way longer than I expected. And I had to move and there were multiple bills and top that was highly on top. And don't even get me started with the secondary essay <laughs> bills. It was like two grand to pay this summer. So that was my first experience with that. I hope it never happens again, but I do feel like I am more equipped to see it in the future. It is really a strange thing to put on my mom hat and think about this stuff. And I really relate to what your mother advised. I have two daughters and a son and my daughters are 17 and 13. And I absolutely am encouraging them to put themselves in these challenging positions at a time when they have a buffer and at a time, honestly, where they have me, I waffle because sometimes I just want to protect them from it or help them to see it and run away from it. I don't know what the right answer is, but for um, your mom and me and our generation, I think if a lot of us are so tough that it doesn't matter so much for us anymore, but to see our daughters and to see our younger versions of ourselves going through it, that's way more painful. Yeah. And my mom was like, of course, like get out of there if, if it does like go the wrong way. And I didn't stay that long. I only stayed like two months because it was a really great job opportunity, but unfortunately the management was just really terrible and me and my coworker both quit. And except for the guy, of course, he was like, I'm having a fine, great experience. And so I just think it's really sad because they never really outright say, you know, these bosses that they're doing this to you intentionally, it just kind of happens and they don't realize it, which I think is just another issue. It's just, they just don't realize it. There isn't no intention of treating you differently because you're a woman. It's just how they've been raised or what they've thought of. I don't know. I think I'm over the point in my life where I'm willing to say that it matters about the intent. And I think there's plenty of things in the world that I care about intent. I care about when my patient says or does something, I care about their intent. When a co-physician says or does something that doesn't land right, I want to know about their intent. But if someone's harassing or bullying Mm. or screaming or having bad behavior, and it's in a gender-based or race-based fashion, I don't care what their intent is. And I don't care that nobody taught them. It's their responsibility. It's 2023. But I do also think that we know that for ourselves to get over these things, we have to forgive to move on. And so part of forgiving is trying to understand where they were coming from. So it's such a double-edged sword. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, I want to end with one of my last questions. As a woman who aspiring to enter a field in surgery, what advice could you give to me and other women, of course, listening to this podcast who are interested in this field that is historically male dominated? I believe, what is it like less than 10% of women are in orthopedic surgery still to this day? Six um, or 6%. 6%. Still. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Any advice you could give to help us continue the fight? 
Yeah. Your patients need you. Yeah. Your future patients deserve to have the choice to have their orthopedic surgeon be who they want them to be, whether it be a white man, whether it be a white woman, whether it be a transgender person of color, our patients deserve to have physicians that make them feel comfortable and heard, look like them and come from their background. Concordant care matters. Now, it's not always possible and always necessary. And if somebody is a true elite expert in some unusual thing, are you going to be able to find somebody who matches? Not necessarily. But in terms of orthopedic patients with musculoskeletal problems, they deserve to have a choice in who their doctor is. And so let that inspire you. And also I'll quote, well, Christy Weber was our first and only so far woman president of the Orthopedic Academy. And in her acceptance speech of her presidential year, she said, be so good that they can't forget you and be so good that they have to notice you. And I don't ever want to say that you have to work harder, but just be good. Yeah. 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 That just reminds me of like bringing back to humanism and medicine. Being good, it not only means just being good at your job and being good at surgery, but also like being good at making those connections and relationships with your patients, you know, regardless of implicit bias. So Thank you so much for sharing your advice and guidance on this podcast. It's been such an amazing pleasure to have you on and to see you again after three years. It's been super great. (laughs) So fun to be here. Thank you for having me and just good luck to you and all of your listeners and all of the journeys that you're all starting. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Weiss. And again, her website is speakuportho.com if you'd like to check it out. And I'll roll the credits. And my yeah. and may I share my social media as oh, my yeah, mom please. the surgeon. That's where you're from. I heard yeah. it's based on that. <laughs> my social media, if you want to find me, is my mom the surgeon. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, all the places. Yeah. Awesome. I got that was my mom the surgeon. And we'll make sure to put that in the description for this podcast episode if you want to check it out. This podcast is produced by Ari Rosenthal, Laura Light Edmonds, and Aditi Galante. You can find our conference on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at National Pre Health Community or MPHC 2020. You can also find our podcast on Instagram at PreHealthPod. You can find all of our events at www.nationalprehealthconfconf.org. We actually have an upcoming research symposium with people presenting from all across the country. There are fantastic research for undergraduate students. We're also going to have a medical student panel and a few guest lectures on the medical school application process that day. It's Sunday, October 22nd, coming up soon. So make sure to go again to www.nationalproofconfcionf.org. And please like, leave a review, or tell one friend if you liked our podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next week.